0: And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com.
1: So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I really have to focus now. <laughs> you do, because it's, gonna, because it's like this is a test. It's I know, I feel like tested. I have to, I, I...
0: I know I feel like I'm walking into you know an English class in high school and about to take a big uh, a big test that
1: I'm not ready for. You said last week that you took uh your daughter to Star Wars I did and say she that fell- a- last week. she fell asleep hmm I took my daughter to Star Wars today, oh okay, and I fell asleep <laughs> <laughs> sometime immediately after the pod races well those Uh, will put anybody to sleep so that's understandable i fell asleep and i woke up when my daughter is like elbowing me saying dad i have a bloody nose and she has blood like pouring out of her face oh my goodness so we ran out and we got tissue and we cleaned it up and she's she's holding her nose and she says let's go back in and she and we watched uh we picked up um at the the carmina barana scene (laughs) Uh, and 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 that i was was quite good but i wanted to share just a few thoughts on because you shared a lot last week i just have a few additions to it okay the the best 3d the most rewarding part of the 3d the reason to make this 3d and the reason it worked for me was the opening title crawl (laughs) which is sad and yet it was exactly what i imagined it should look like floating in space and then from that point forward the 3D was totally useless. Did you get the, that? I mean it was Well,
0: n- I didn't think it was useless. Like like during the um the battle scene at the end when you know all the ships were flying around in space that it just added a nice depth
1: to it, you know. It's a nice yet nay nearly imperceptible depth. Like that movie was so clean and so perfect. When it was released, right, mm-hmm. it it looks so crisp and perfect on right. my on my television. It looks crisp and perfect, and I go to see it on the big screen. My expectation is that it will be crisp and perfect, especially because I just talked about last week. I talked about how I saw Ghost Rider, which was some of the most impeccable three D that I have seen, mm-hmm. uh, and this one was fuzzy and uh, distractingly um, artifact heavy uh, and downright out of focus in some sequences. And I found myself really aggravated by that. I was frustrated the whole time. I was like, why did I give this dude more of my money? I'm really getting myself I and and I do it willingly. It's like, please know, stop make me stop punching myself in the neck. <laughs> uh, I got re- I was getting really fired up.
0: Yeah. It's it's all the um just going back to old films and and converting it. Because I've had the same experience on everything I've seen that's been a you know an older film that's been converted to 3D like uh, the Lion King and this it just everything seems dark and it just it you know it doesn't it, seem to lend itself well because, to it because because
1: check me on this when you film something in 3D and convert to standard or to 2D right you you're able to maintain this the the crispness of the sort of uh, and and the full range of color and the full range of sort of brightness and saturation, right? Well, because because all you're doing when you're filming
0: in 3D you're is you're filming, filming two with two cameras. cameras. So yeah, when you drop it to 2D, you just only show one camera's perspective,
1: right? And and so the the conversion. Do you know what the actual like? Could you walk through in short strokes like what the conversion from 2D to 3D of an old movie? What do they do? I I know nothing about it. What does the process look like?
0: Well, my understanding, which, you know, I...
1: Which is, I'm sure, awesome. Seriously.
0: (laughs) I'm not an expert, so this is just my basic understanding. But essentially, they take a photograph. uh, You know, essentially, a frame of of film is like a photograph, right?
1: So I've heard. I've heard this.
0: Right, exactly. And there's just, you know, 24 of these these... every second, blah, blah, blah. So you take that, and it's it's what... um, it's rotoscoping essentially is what they do, so say you have you know you know three characters, a building, and then in the distance you have you know a fire or something, and the three characters are spread at different spaces across the foreground, so what they do is they they basically cut them out, and that's i mean really what they do is they they cut them out and you just create rot- like
1: multiple layers of film now
0: yeah it's it's essentially kind of like the old school disney um like what they did in their animation with the multiplane cameras and now what you do is you have a frame of your film but like one character is on the upper level the next character is is a little bit farther behind that one the third character is farther behind that then you have the frame of the house and then far distant you have the the fire right right whatever is burning in the back and so you you now you know guess as to how far all of these are from the camera. So that you're able to say, okay, that burning bush in the back is, uh, you know, uh, 500 yards away. This The frame of the house is, is uh, 20 yards away. And then, you know, this person is 12 yards, this person is six yards, and this person is four yards away. And th- so they use all, I don't know, some sort of mathematical thing, I'm sure, to kind of just create... Okay, so if this person is four yards away, we're gonna have to put the duplicate image in the other camera's eye this far, you know, move him over to this bit. And so it's just kind of a process of cutting people out and moving them around so that frame by
1: frame by frame by frame.
0: Exactly. So it's it's a long and and awful process, I'm sure. And then obviously, if a film was done with a lot of CG, like Star Wars, they that can rebuild a lot of effects. Well, or they can take, yeah, they can take the ex- effects that they created, and they can be just essentially re, you know, process the entire thing of the effects through a different lens, which would be the 3D
1: lens. Right, right.
0: So in a sense, anything that's CG has the um, ability to become much more um, three dimensional than the kind of cutout after uh, thought mm-hmm. that uh, they do.
1: Right, and you could see that in uh you know, for example, Darth Maul's uh, Sentinel droids. Right, yeah. he sends the three droids out into the community, and you can see when they come into frame, it it feels like they come out and are floating out over the audience of the of the the sort of the lower part of the theater, and that feels that that feels uh appropriate that's like rich 3d and those moments happened so few and far between in this film for me like i expected to be blown out of my seat during the pod racing scene i expected to be blown out of my seat as those as during the the final lightsaber battle um and i i just didn't get it i it felt like i was you know just throwing good money after bad i was very frustrated by it
0: I am sorry to hear
1: that uh on that note, however, uh my daughter is really stoked to see wrath of the Titans. kind of wish that wasn't uh something she was excited about, but it, well, and it's a speaking, big film
0: and so, speaking of the films that were um you know converted after the fact, yeah that the first one Clash of the Titans was shot two d but then you know, like many modern three d films it was was you know as an afterthought up converted to 3D to make some extra cash.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And it was done really poorly and that's a perfect example. Like when I saw that, I could see like, you know, oh, Perseus is on this level of the film and right. You know, it's just, it's just like it just felt like a bunch of cut It felt like um what are those called? Those little um viewfinders that kids look through, you know.
1: Huh. Yeah, just yeah, kinda... yeah, yeah, the Viewmaster.
0: Viewmaster, thank yeah, you. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, that's what it feels like. That's exactly what it feels like. But I on that same note, I'm actually looking forward to Wrath of the Titans. It looks like one of those great big movies that's going to be a great sort of exemplar for for, you know, cool effects. Like like Ghost Rider was. I mean, it was gorgeous. Yeah. Even be- even if you don't like Nick Cage. I mean, I which I don't really. Uh but I quite uh, I quite enjoyed the experience.
0: I enjoyed the first Ghost Rider uh more than I thought I would. I don't think I'd see it again, but I still no. enjoyed it more than I thought I would. And right. it's got a great great score by Christopher Young. So
1: Yeah, that's true. That's very uh, true. You should did. definitely see this because these because this is the the second one, Spirit of Vengeance is it's a great action movie. Have, you know, it's really it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> he plays it he plays the actual uh the actual ghostwriter very differently than in the first one like it's really twitchy and sort of schizophrenic and and uh like i was fascinated by just how the actual sort of skeletal hero moves uh and it it was it was really it was great i I quite enjoyed it uh so andy did you see anything else uh, this week that's worth talking about
0: um yeah i saw um i saw margin call
1: oh what'd you think
0: I loved it. I was just totally engrossed by it. I thought it was a fantastic film. And, uh, you know, I I definitely think it was worth the, uh, the Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. And Kevin Spacey, it was so refreshing to see him in a film where he wasn't just like – he's kind of almost become a cliché of himself as always just kind of like this, you know, uh, just douchebag – you know, guy who's just rude to everybody and crass and just, you know, always coming out with these, you know, smarmy comments and stuff. And it was such a refreshing opportunity to see him playing kind of a reserved character who, um, is still like in the middle of this huge, uh, it's basically all takes place over about 28 hours or so, um, of the company that essentially started, the firewall sale of the all the mortgages back in 2007 right right
1: it's it's like the first 24 hours like the yeah It's right and has some really terrific performers, performances from some really terrific actors who I never really expected seeing together. Right. Paul Bettany uh, with Jeremy Irons, with Zachary Quinto. I mean, to me (laughs) more, to me more. I have a major crush on Ashley Williams uh, and uh, and please Asif Manvi. Yeah, uh, is I mean, I see that guy every night in uh, on The Daily Show. Well, not every night, but he's great.
0: Yeah. It was, it was, uh, for a first film, uh, by J.C. Chandor. I, I was just blown away. I was really, really pleasantly surprised by it.
1: That's great. Uh, I'm glad you saw that movie. What was that? The, that's all you caught this week? Ah, uh, gosh. I feel like
0: I've seen something else. Um, but I'm just blanking right now. Mm-hmm. I started watching the conversation again. I haven't, uh, I, I passed out from a long day of skiing after uh, I started after that and just I made it about halfway through.
1: Where do you, where do you go skiing in Phoenix? <laughs> you just drive up into the mountains. There are they a couple hours there away. There are no mountains there. Where do you go from mountains? Where do you think the Grand Canyon is? It's up in the north country. Grand Canyon's a hole in the earth. <laughs> You're just making stuff up now. <laughs> just making it up.
0: Uh, no, Flagstaff has a great, uh, a great ski hill, albeit very thin of snow this time of year. Wow, it was, a, it was a little. It was still a good day, and it was my daughter's first time skiing, so it was a lot of fun.
1: Oh, that's fun. That's yeah. nice.
0: You could do that. Uh,
1: all right. Well, I, I didn't. Besides uh, seven, I'm working my way through, uh, which I, I had not seen was the, the Lincoln Lawyer, um, oh, okay, which. I I think I expected more. I, I guess I'm tired of Matthew McConaughey being a lawyer. You know,
0: I expected. I, I think I was expecting less from that film. Really, so I, walked, I walked out of it uh, enjoying it quite a bit. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I just wasn't really expecting much. I, I I guess I don't. I've grown to a point where I don't expect much from Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey. So when yeah. I saw him in a film that was wasn't uh, that bad, I was like, okay,
1: there you go. Have you heard anything uh, any any word on whether or not they're going to? Uh, speaking of lawyer titles, uh, whether they're, anybody has optioned, the litigators, I have uh, John Grisham's new book. I read that book this week, and it is uh, it was a good read. It's a pulpy kind of lawyer read, but it was it it was really good. There's a nice uh, there's a nice sort of dramatic twist to it um i like the characters he he pulled together for this uh for for this law firm that it's a it's an interesting twist of sort of watching the ambulance chasing um kind of law firm turn into something reputable and i really i felt good i felt sort of rewarded at the end of it and i don't usually feel that way about law stories kind of like denzel washington in philadelphia yeah (laughs) right uh man i haven't seen that in so long uh um, that's been a while. Anyway, it, it was a good uh, it was a good read. Cool. Uh and um I'm working now on uh oh my goodness. It's it's an absolutely epic uh science fiction story. I can't think of the the name of it. Um well, it'll come a, to me. A be. recent one? No, it's it's one it's one it's one of those on I'm listening to it. I'm I've got it through uh, Audible and it's one of those that's like six parts that are nine hours each you know i mean it's this uh, uh unbelievable epic and there are five books of that length and girth in the <laughs> in, in the series and so i'm just trying to get through it and and uh but it's it's quite good I, i'll think of it it'll come to me anyway we Excellent. should talk about this Excellent. movie uh well before we do oh, do you okay. want to do your usual thing i do i have a usual thing um
0: and- Do your usual thing, and then we have two new five-star reviews on iTunes, so I'll read those after you're done.
1: Oh, I love that. I know. Isn't it great? It's really great. Um, uh, So uh, I wasn't actually ready. But I'm now I'm ready. Well, well, okay. No, no, no I'm ready now. Uh, okay. but, uh the the usual thing is this, make sure if you are uh, if you're catching this on the website, we love that you've stopped by the website. You can listen to the show on the website anytime you want. That's very handy. Uh you can also hear our show on Stitcher Smart Radio, it allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, iPad, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and more on demand and on the go. You can download Stitcher for free at stitcher.com or find it in the appropriate app stores for your chosen mobile ecosystem stitcher smart radio it's the smarter way to listen to radio uh you can also find us in the itunes podcast directory and and when i'm looking at our uh our data of where people come from i look at, at where people are coming from um uh, to listen to the show by far people are still hitting us from uh from itunes um i wanted to share with you before we do that what countries people are listening to the show uh in Ooh. and i am so i i would like to welcome each and every one of our international listeners uh we have a very small uh a small population of listeners in the russian federation oh uh, romania croatia france we start getting a little bit more uh interest in france and the european union and spain and denmark and germany and japan now, Argentina and Chile, it starts picking up. Ukraine, the Maldives, the Philippines, we now have more of a significant audience in the Philippines, and the Netherlands. Greetings to all of our Netherlands listeners. Uh, Vietnam, the United Kingdom, and second to the United States, Mexico. Uh, wow. Buenos dias. Uh, how do you say welcome to our podcast in Spanish? Uh, bienvenidos a, uh, nos, uh, podcast, I
0: guess. That was, that, that <laughs> if was, I recall any Spanish for my Spanish that, speaking days.
1: That was good. That was good. You sounded very, uh, you sounded just like a foreigner speaking Spanish in a restaurant authentically. <laughs> 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 and of course, all of our U.S. listeners, thank you so much for for uh, joining the show and listening to us, and um, and for passing on uh, word of the show to your movie loving friends. We appreciate uh, we appreciate your help. Yes, we do. And what what do people have to say in our uh, in iTunes?
0: Well, we have uh, Amy uh, spelled very cleverly, E I G H M M I E. Amy nice. said, "Deep and insightful film banter." I have enjoyed the musings of Pete Wright on a number of different topics, but truly enjoy the (laughs) Movies We Like podcast. The discussion always takes me back to the moments of the films, which really caught my attention and made the lasting impressions. Wright and Nelson share new-to-me discoveries on the makings and behind the scenes, and also give me some morsels of goodness on perhaps why those film moments connected.
1: That's really nice.
0: Yeah. Oh, and then she says, highly recommend. Oh, so, yeah, that is really nice.
1: Amy, e- e- Amy, <laughs> that's really nice. I, I uh, yeah, that's very kind of her to say. Who else do we have? Who else has, has written in?
0: You, you reminded me either of, of Nell or Forrest Gump when you said that. <laughs> Amy. <laughs> uh, and then Mike <laughs> Evans, uh, good old Mike here in uh, Surprise, said, it feels like I am in the room with them.
1: That might not be a great compliment. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like I can't get out of a room that I have stopped.
0: I'm (laughs) clawing at the walls, but they won't let me leave. Uh, Uh, He says, I enjoy this podcast a lot. Even if they are talking about a movie I have seen a bunch of times and think I know everything about it, they seem to find things that I hadn't thought about. It makes me want to watch the movie again to see what I missed. For the older movies, it's like rediscovering the movie all over again. And for the newer ones, I find myself seeing films I may have not been inclined to. It's a benefit to see the movies before you listen to the podcast. If you do, you will get more out of it and feel like you are talking with the guys.
1: Man, that's so cool. What great, Amy that's- and Mike, thank you so much for saying that. And I know, uh, actually, uh, both of uh, Amy and Mike have also uh, uh, commented along with us on Facebook uh, uh, posts. And uh, uh, it's just always, it's just very gratifying to hear that they're listening along. So a big shout out to Amy and Mike uh, for for keeping up with us. Yes, thank you. Uh, and, um I think Mike was the one who actually, wasn't he the one who started pointing out the movies that he really <laughs> didn't, he skipped the podcast because he really hated the movies? I uh, hope he uh, turned around. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that was Alex. I oh, guess. okay, good. All right. Yeah. All right. Yes.
0: Yeah, so he uh, said, I can't remember which movie it was. Well, Benjamin Button, maybe?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that one, that was a, a subject of hot protest. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, as I like to call it, seven <laughs> Sevenen. seven en seven n can we talk about this movie are Let's you ready talk
0: about it. I am ready to talk about seven now that we've been going God. on for about a half hour now
1: this movie totally holds
0: up it more than holds up this movie is is uh i think should be one of the uh perennial classics
1: absolutely hands down i I don't know. Uh, i don't really know how to talk about this movie in any context other than awesome it is uh and okay all right i'm gonna i'm gonna slow down i gotta slow down (laughs) i gotta slow down i feel like i'm eating too fast like i'm running out of oxygen in the in the office here so you we have now watched all of the fincher films with the exception of alien three correct and we've watched them in reverse Mm -hmm. what is your perception of this movie in the context of all the other now later movies in our benjamin button style fincher quest uh how does this movie compare now that you've seen all these other movies that have stacked up after it
0: you know it's i i was wondering if we should talk about that beforehand or after and i think we may as well talk about it now um well, you I've know, totally screwed it up then. No, no, no. I've I think it's it great. It's, All right. good, it's good to bring it up. I, I think it's um. watching it in reverse was very interesting to kind of deconstruct you know, Fincher's career and see where he started with things and working with certain people and choices that he made and everything. And coming back to Seven, I have really found that... He's a filmmaker who who's certainly kind of, you know, grown in the types of stories that he tells. But for all intents and purposes, I mean, coming out of the gate, he was already making amazing films. And so it's not like watching a filmmaker grow from kind of a low end, you know, a, a rated movie. Up to you know something stellar. I mean, he's been making stellar films from the beginning. This film, as soon as it was over again, I, I told my wife, I said, you know, this might I might consider this a perfect film. I mean, it's it's so good. I, there's a few little problems I have with it, but I really
1: am looking forward to hearing what those problems are. I think it, for me, there is one problem with it, and that is it's not approachable enough to a broader audience.
0: Well, I think that is a, I mean. I guess that is a problem but you know if you if you are a filmmaker and you're acknowledging your audience and you make a film with your audience in mind knowing that this is a film that the audience I'm making it for will really connect to it there are definitely going to be audiences that aren't going to like it I know people who won't watch it because of the gore um and because it's just so dark and gloomy but you know everyone else who I know who is fine watching that in a film thinks it's a fantastic film
1: well true and i you know i say that really more personally because i find myself watching it kira would not watch it with me um and i I, I, she swears up and down that i had forced her to watch it some time ago and and i don't remember that but the 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 point is i it is such a a well-architected film and the performances from uh Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt Brad Pitt so early in his career Yeah um are are so pitch perfect in this film that that um I want more people to see it I want to share it with more people and uh and I don't find that it you know I find that there's such a, a audience of folks that are that are put off by the gore um that that you know that that's that's disappointing to me i want to share i want to share what really fine film work is, is modern auteur uh work is is really all about yeah uh, You, you had been sharing some points in our, in our, in the Google doc that I thought were pretty strong. Uh, In particular, as long as we're talking about early in David Fincher's career, can you share what you found out about, about Morgan Freeman's first um, perception of working with Fincher?
0: Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to the, the commentary on the film on the, uh, the, the, uh, the DVD. Um, It was, I know they had different commentary when The Criterion Collection released the Laserdisc, which I actually have, although I did not have time to go through all of those commentaries. That would have been a lot of commentaries to go through. Um, But yeah, Morgan Freeman um, was talking about uh, David Fincher and, you know, just kind of what it was like working with him. So let me just read this blurb. Um, Let's see if I want to read the whole thing. Uh, I, well, I'll just read the whole thing. I, I'd highlighted a portion but I didn't read the whole thing. When I first met David Fincher, I was struck by his personality, his person. He's warm. He's got this great smile. And then you talk to him and his intelligence is almost intimidating. And he's explaining to me how he wants to shoot this. Nothing about character and all that stuff. That was just my area. But the technical aspects of this movie and how he wanted to approach it, I found it very intriguing. And I was looking forward to working with this guy. So I found myself immediately able to put myself in his hands because he's already told me about what he wants to do, the effect he wants to make, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I now know this, so if he says he needs me to make an adjustment for the light, I won't cuss out the director of photography for making play to the lights. My whole experience with David throughout the filming was one of almost symbiosis. I really took to him and admired him.
1: I find that passage so, like, I, I think the most important Um, sort of frame for me around that is that this was a guy on his second major motion picture production
0: after a really bad experience after a bad
1: experience exactly at this movie I think hearing a comment like that from an actor with such a a CV as Morgan Freeman uh, it you're just as likely to have seen that sort of a reaction to working with Fincher as uh, you know after benjamin button or after girl with the dragon tattoo like that's that's the kind of of um, you know really expertise that he sort of just brings uh instinctively to working with actors don't you think
0: yeah. oh yeah i i completely agree he really knows how to communicate with the actors knows how to communicate with all of the technical people he's working with and he's also able to like work with each of them so that they understand the other side so that the actors, like he said here, you know, he is he, Morgan Freeman knew exactly what Fincher was trying to do technically so that he knew, you know, the look that he that Fincher was going for with the film. So on the technical side, Morgan Freeman didn't mind moving his body, adjusting it for the light. Um, whereas if if that hadn't been explained to him, like he said, he would have just, you know, cussed out the director of photography. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting when, when you start, um, getting to that place as a director and you're able to kind of make everybody work together so well. And like we just said, this is at the beginning of his career.
1: Okay. Let's walk through, uh, uh, let's walk through the, the, the film, uh, a, a little bit, um, the film the script by Andrew Kevin Walker how did the script uh how did the script come to fincher he was not originally slated to direct this one
0: no this film um i didn't really uh realize this until i was listening to these commentaries but it was uh it was around for a little while i think um andrew kevin walker wrote it uh, late 80s early 90s i want to say while he was living in new york he was really depressed about you know his attempt at um becoming a screenwriter and everything. And New York just had this oppressive feeling on him that basically led him to write this story.
1: Huh. Um, yeah, I can I can yeah. feel that. That's yeah, a right. that's a real you ought to send that to the mayor afterward. This is <laughs> I I spent some time in your city and just wanted to share with you the results. <laughs>
0: well and it's uh. funny because they never actually tell you what city you know the film takes place in it definitely has that new york vibe but it's never called out as new york and it was actually shot in la which is very interesting considering how oppressive and rainy and dark and dirty the whole thing looks
1: right
0: yeah very interesting but he um so andrew kevin walker it it started making its way around hollywood and um, a director, Jeremiah Chechik, was attached to direct it. He um, is not a director who's done a whole lot. I think um, you know his big credits would be uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Benny and June. Uh, so it's odd that he was chosen. I think his his American remake of the French film Diabolique is probably what. Uh, got his, his
1: name on it, yeah,
0: yeah, um, but at the time, the studios, and I don't know how much a role Jeremiah was playing in this or if it was just the studios, they really had Andrew turn it away from the kind of the gritty film that it is as we know it, um, they had him trying to turn it into more of a kind of a a detective you know chase film type of story where at the end you've got this great big. Uh, you know this big chase scene where Somerset and Mills are are uh, you know on the on the trail of John Doe and um, as I you know as I was reading here you know they they uh, chase John Doe down into a uh, a manhole and through the sewers and up into this building that he sets on fire or something and you know it, it just turned into a very cliche sort of you know Hollywood um, cop action movie. Um, luckily that film did not get made. Um, something happened. I'm not quite sure what, but, um, David Fincher, he, um, was sent the script and looked at it and he loved it. He thought it was just, just a brilliant, brilliant script. And he, like Everything about it from the beginning all the way through the head of the box at the end. He called his agent and was like, I have to make this. This is great. And this was, you know, after Alien 3, um, you know, it was reported that he didn't read a script for a year and a half saying, um, I thought I'd rather die of colon cancer than do another movie. So he, I know he was really apparently turned off and was just happy uh, at that point in his life doing nothing but commercials again. But his agent sent him this script. He read it, was just like thrilled at the chance to do something that really was, would stand out. And he called his agent and said, I want to make this. God, I can't believe, you know, we could make this movie with his head in the box. And his manager was, or his agent was like, whoa, 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 head in the box. Oh, no, I sent you the wrong draft of the script. Here, let me, <laughs> send you the, let, me, let, let me send you the the most recent draft. And he sent him the script. And it was the one that had like the, the stereotypical cop chase at the end and everything. And he's just like, what? No, this is not the film that I want to make. And so he told his agent that he would only do it if it was the original first script or his first draft of the script that had the head in the box and the
1: whole, well, you I, know, very it, and heavy the, ending the way I understand it. Also, it was, it was, uh, uh, Brad Pitt had a role in that saying he refused to make the film if the ending were changed.
0: Well, that was after How Was that later. That was after Fincher came on because then once Fincher was on and they were trying to make it, the studio was really, really pushing to change the ending. The whole idea of having a head in the box at the ending, was just not something that they wanted to make. And so they wanted to change the ending um, to remove the head in the box, or like they wanted to put a dog's head in, I think, at one point. Um, like it was one of his dog's heads in the box. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, not as good. Mor- Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, that's the point where they're just like, uh uh-uh, uh, no way. It's not gonna carry the weight. And to the point where Arnold Copelson, uh, one of the producers on the film, um, had to sit down with, with Fincher and uh, Fincher convinced him. He said, you know, look, in 50 years, w- th- we want this to be a film that people are still going to be talking about. We want people to be, you know, this is what we can do. We'll keep the head in the box. This is going to be in 50 years. People will be still talking about it. They'll say, oh, was that movie with the head in the box at the end? That's that is going to be the the moment in the film that people will still remember, and why it will be a film that is remembered. And he's
1: right; it's true. And there it's are funny. so many of those moments in this movie. Yeah, Almost every yeah. one of the sins is one that you could that you remember
0: but it's it's that twist at the end yeah. that and it's not just the head in the box, but it's really what that head in the box represents, and how it ends up tying all of that those pieces, those final two sins, wrath and envy, right, how it ties all of that together, and it's it's so powerful, it really just
1: it is it is powerful uh oh my goodness it's powerful on so many visually it's extremely powerful that uh now check me on this i don't think they actually show the head in the box no no they don't that's that's a very sort of wonderful hitchcockian kind of a twist given the amount of gore that they show in this movie uh the amount of just sort of darkness and just a really disgusting setup for all of these different, uh, all of the different, the way all the different sins play out, to then not show the head in the box is, uh, uh, it, it's really rewarding. Like you you, you end up really feeling, almost expecting it and you're, uh, uh, it, it's like a kick in the gut when you don't see it.
0: Well, and then you find out what it is. Right. You you find out, and it's. But you almost couldn't show it because you want it to be a surprise. You want the audience to be thinking about what it is, so that when when Somerset runs back and and um, John Doe tells Mills, you know, that moment is just like whoa.
1: John Doe tells Mills. How? What did? What's your perception of how he tells
0: Mills? I you. I don't know. I mean it works for me. It's it's a very it's the final um the final piece, the final card that he has that he plays and shows that that this whole time he has um been winning and he knew it. Yeah. You know, he had all the cards all the time. They were trying to beat him. But they were never ahead of him. They never had any idea how these last two deaths, wrath and envy, uh, or last two victims—I guess I should say—were
1: going to come together. Yeah, that he was going to be one of the victims. Yeah, it's um,
0: it's really, really a powerful way to play that ending
1: it was it was absolutely uh it was an absolutely wonderful twist um the uh, let's see what else stands out we i had told you last week that i wanted i I wanted you to talk a little bit about the the way uh, the, the technology of the film um obviously this was long before digital
0: yeah they still shot it on film and and fincher you know he had been really tired of films that took place in the dark didn't look dark where the you know a black night didn't look black but kind of looked like a muddy gray Mm -hmm. um what happens when when uh film companies may well when distributors um used to make film prints they would make you know put them on real thin film on real thin emulsion and so anything that was dark just had kind of this grayish look so what he did in this film, is he did a a process um, called a bleach bypass process, where essentially after it runs through the, um, I'm going to try to get this right, the film runs through the bath where it gets processed, and what happens is the silver uh, gets stripped off of the 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 negative, and but when that what they do then is they run it back through, so the silver Um, essentially kind of reattaches itself to the emulsion in the dark spots. Um, And I don't quite understand the chemical uh, reason for all of that, but somehow it ends up coming out where everything that's dark has a much deeper, darker look to it. And so it creates these really dark, contrasty films um, that are really um, just real moody. It just has a real moody look. And um, and Can that's you, essentially how they shot it. And it they only did this with, uh, I don't know, a certain number, like 2,500 of the initial film prints that went out after that. The rest of them weren't done that way. Um, I think in the initial run, I saw in the initial like opening night. And so I'm pretty sure I saw it in the silver nitrate version and uh, feeling like it was just this very dark black film.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you think of other films that have used the same process? Um,
0: I was looking at that and I, you know, the game had, they used a, a similar process, but I don't think it was quite the same process. Uh, let's see. Um, it was first used actually in 1960 by a film, uh Japanese filmmaker, Kone Chikawa called her brother. Uh, that was the first time Bleach Bypass was used. It was actually uh, – oh, no, not that one. Um, it was used in uh, – actually in Roger Deakins' film 1984. That's pretty interesting. Huh. I did not know that. Um, and uh, in Saving Private Ryan actually. There's there's a big recent one that was done.
1: Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Okay, uh, so the the film the, the it really does look darker, and I think the uh, I think what the, what I had read the Criterion collection uh, the the most recent Criterion collection they actually went back to one of those bleach bypass twenty five hundred, uh, and so you can get the you can get that look on the special edition DVD.
0: Well, which is actually an interesting thing about doing that process is you essentially every time you make a new version of it, like when Criterion did their version, and then when the studio did the version for the DVD, you can't just, um, take, you know, a, another version. You essentially have to go through the process all over again. And so the DVD, uh, and Blu-ray that subsequently have come out in the last, you know, 12 years or so, um, are actually going to have a potentially slightly different look than the Criterion uh, Laserdisc version that came out um in the 90s. So oh. it's you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I it, I think it would be interesting to look side by side at the different versions right. and, and see, see. Yeah, how how much it's actually changed.
1: Uh okay, so let's talk about the our lead characters. Uh, Originally, uh, it sounds like, let's see, there were a couple of interesting uh, casting choices Uh, or casting, I think, would have been interesting casting choices. You know, hindsight is always (laughs) what it is. But uh, apparently the part of Brad Pitt was once considered by uh, considered for Denzel Washington, who turned it down. Yeah. Well, that would have been a whole different movie.
0: Yeah, it would have been. I I could almost see Denzel Washington, not to put him down in any way, but I could almost have seen him in the more, you know, cop chase oriented version. Totally,
1: totally. Very different. But I think one of the things that Brad Pitt brings to it, and I, let's see, uh, where where is this? I I need to go back and get the year for 12 Monkeys. When did 12 Monkeys come out?
0: Uh, It was the same year. This Brad Pitt actually was not available for some reshoots um, at the end. Because he was actually off shooting Twelve Monkeys, so these came out uh, right on the
1: uh, right on the heels of one another. Yeah, yep. It, it's that it's uh, he brings that. It, there's a very strange sort of twitchiness that uh, I I think he um, that, that sort of carries across between the two films. You know, you can feel their proximity. They sort of bookend one another, like the the character in Twelve Monkeys is what happens after. Uh, you know, the character goes through what he goes through in seven,
0: you know? Uh, uh, that's that's an interesting uh, twist that I hadn't really thought of, but it's kind of funny. You don't know. you
1: see it? I mean, it just feels like he's bringing that to him. There's a thing that he does in this movie that he's just constantly scratching the back of his head. Yeah. And I found myself wanting to itch something back there for him. Uh, <laughs> it, it is just such a perfect sort of frustration. He's like a caged animal. He like brings exactly what I expect of this new, uh, you know, how he he considers himself as a seasoned police detective having spent you know 5 years uh doing this sort of detective work uh and yet he is still the newbie sort of beat detective compared right. to Morgan Freeman's uh 38 year uh veteran yeah uh it's a f- they I, I mean i you think back to the sort of the the buddy movies right that are that are the the buddy movies that are fun to watch the character development yeah right and this one stands out to me uh because of the sophistication of these two actors and the way they bring their relationship together through the course of these horrific events you you see that you know hey it's nice to meet you get the hell out of my office i'm the new guy i'm here to take over uh turn to turn into you know these guys who who really have a deep affection for one another. And by the end of the movie, uh, there's that, there's that great Morgan Freeman, you know, as he's talking with the, the, the chief saying, you know, whatever he needs, Mm -hmm. give him whatever he needs. And it's just a, it's a wonderful, turn and there's a point about uh, I guess about 40 minutes into the movie there the two of them are talking to the chief in the office and they're trying to come together on these on these uh, uh, you know on these killings and they they get the call that uh, uh i guess it's the police commissioner i can't remember is the com- police commissioner who is it who's giving the statement and they, they stand together and say you know this doesn't feel right this isn't our guy uh and and you really realize that they are they are as one f- in this film finally and that that conversion that transformation of these two characters from being you know sort of artful opposites to a singular crime fighting entity is uh, is really great
0: yeah yeah it is and it, even to the point where at the end or toward the end as they're getting ready to go with John Doe out to find these last two bodies. You know, you've got that very intimate scene where mm-hmm. they're uh, like shaving their chests together while they prepare to be taped up for the uh, wireless or for the the microphones to be right. taped to their chests and everything. You know, it's it is very it does create this very intimate moment between the two guys where they really have grown together. Even it's even though it's only over the course of a week, it does develop into a much more uh uh, interesting relationship as as it goes.
1: Well, and and I think you you know that's a really good point the the sort of space and time element which is to say that uh, uh you know one of the things that horrific events does to that that the act of experiencing a horrific event does to you know to teams is bring them together and um you know and these two guys are certainly examples of that.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Another interesting uh thing that I think works really well in this film is um, in in relation to Brad Pitt is his relationship with Gwyneth Paltrow as his wife, Tracy. Um, and I think the fact that this was actually made at the time, um, if people remember back when Brad and Gwyneth were actually a couple, and I think that the affection that they have for each other in this film is a great reflection of the actual real life affection that they had for each other. And it comes across. I think it really comes across in the film, even though her on-screen time is uh, very, very short.
1: Very short. But those moments are. Uh, she is a, a, a significant catalyst in the in the film. And you know, it's interesting. Uh, it, there is a there's a scene where she calls um, Somerset, right, uh, and to to have coffee, where she confides in him, saying, you know, she that she is pregnant. And uh, he is so beautifully clumsy uh, in his ability to talk to to women. And yet he does so really quite well. Uh, and, and you see her really break down. And yet she has been such a symbol of strength uh, in her relationship with Brad Pitt's character in bringing those two men together to invite him over to dinner and to, to really cut through all the awkwardness that these guys were dealing with.
0: Well, and to really introduce them to each other as, you know, David and William. Yeah, exactly. You know, up to that point, they didn't even know each other's first names.
1: Exactly. Yeah, great uh, moment. It, it was a great moment. It was a great moment. Um, it, one of the things I find really, I found interesting in this movie, and as long as we're, you, you know, we look at the thread of, of um, sort of elements um, in the films of Fincher is this idea of how he handles uh, research, on-screen research. Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of on-screen research in his films. And this movie uh, is no different. And I, yeah, well, at least I don't remember dealing with on-screen research in Alien 3. Um, <laughs> but but this one, there is a lot of it there. Uh, did you get any sense for, uh, or do you have any sort of reflection on how this movie handles the use of sort of on-screen printed and photographic material compared to these other movies.
0: Well, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, he really, he does do that. And I, you know, I guess by nature, it's a detective story. So they are going to detect, they're going to use their skills to do that. Um, You know, just, uh, just like, you know, Daniel Craig's character does in girl with the dragon tattoo. He is a, you know, investigative journalist, he's investigating. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way he does it is very fascinating and a lot of it stems from the story itself, you know, you have this serial killer who for all intents and purposes has really done his research and is a very, very smart cookie. You know, he, he has read all these books, you know, which is obviously how they track him down in the film. They, um uh, he's read all these books. He's read, you know, um, the um Dante's Inferno. He's, you know, read uh the Marquis de Sade or the Marquis de Chardet as <laughs> Marquis de Chardet so brilli- exactly. brilliantly uh, eloquates. But it's it's very um he's somebody who's who's um who has done his homework and Somerset likewise is somebody who knows how to um uh, how to research and I think for me, the scene in the library always stands out as a fantastic moment where you really get to see a very smart man use the tools that are handy to him to um, kind of dig deeper into what this serial killer is trying to say and is doing. And the way that it's shot, the way that scene is is done with that um Uh, bach piece playing in the background
1: which it it correct me if i'm wrong but i think that's the same uh the same piece that is uh playing when uh james bond wakes up in the undersea lair of uh one of my spy who loved me is it (laughs) i think it's the same piece i'm gonna have to research that but it's one of my favorite scenes when he says oh mr bond here are my sharks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay, go ahead. You were saying that was just a genius comparison. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> well, i let me just interject because one of the reasons that I like this so much is that and I think is a a really artful way to- I- inject uh sort of interactivity into the scene uh there is a sequence where somerset is you know he's doing all this research you know he's doing it off time uh right he's not because he's not really on the case he's let yeah he's off the case at this yeah point, right? he's doing but he is we see these pictures of all this classic you, you know the the classic uh sort of renaissance uh uh cuttings mm-hmm. uh, of the seven deadly sins and he's making notes to Mills saying you may want to check out such and such in the catechism and such and such in the seven sins and seven deadly sins etc he's making notes and it it cuts back to Mills doing his own investigation which is uh, essentially um, uh, an update of the seven deadly sins printings uh, that Somerset was looking at it's it's the actual photographs of John Doe's work uh, right. and and having those having it cut between the two characters doing their own research uh, interjects a real sort of momentum to the to the scene to the sequence uh, that makes it uh, you know it makes it not sort of get bogged down uh, in just information vomit right. Uh, I interrupted yeah. you with my James Bond no, thing a while ago, so now no, no, finish but, your. But point. you're
0: absolutely right. It's that's exactly why it works so well. Is you have these inner cuttings of these things. You 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 know the way that it it cuts to him looking through these books and photocopying the pages, and you see these these wonderfully um, awful images of the 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 layers of hell and you know um, all the different Renaissance paintings that Mm -hmm. we look at and everything, and then the actual crime scene photos, which really have a, you know, kind of a quality of, you know, that, you know, fascinating horror uh, that you see in crime scene photos, you know, where, I don't know, they always end up black and white for some reason, but um, just the nature of the crimes just is, is so horrific. And then the way that it's depicted in black and white just seems so matter of fact, yet yet awful and mm-hmm. kind of the way that a lot of the, the art was, you know, it's, it, it has the same sort of quality. So it is, it's a really fascinating way to, to get across the research as they look at it all.
1: I have in my notes, something I, I, it's like a mea culpa. Uh, I, um, I brought up during when we were talking about, uh, I guess it was panic room that I really loved. It, it was Panic Room and Fight Club that I really loved the way he did on screen titles. And I had brought up, uh, it, it, when I brought it up, it was about credits. Um, and you, you came back immediately and said, are you kidding? The best credits in Fincher, the that Fincher does is from seven. And so I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your impression of the credits, um, sequence because it's another one of the sort of legendary fincher credits i feel like we should stack and just do a show reviewing only credit sequences of of his films
0: yeah you easily could it well it's really i mean it's i i very distinctly remember watching this film in the theater and those credits started and i just was like already like knocked back in my seat just going i am in for an amazing experience here what I, of,
1: of I, note? I, the credits don't happen at the beginning of the movie. Right? No,
0: no, no. Right? Yeah. The very first thing you see is a is crime scene. Uh, yeah, you see a crime scene um, with Somerset while right. he's investigating a a, a domestic, right. you know, violence that turned into murder scene. Um, very quiet, very uh, you know, laid back, very interesting scene. The way yeah. it plays, Yeah. and then it jumps into the credits so which 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 essentially are um the introduction to john doe for the audience because we're essentially watching john doe's creation of these fascinating and horrifying journals of his that are just full of scribbles of like the rantings of a madman in um a lot of respects along with really horrifying and unique photos and sketches and but the way that it's it's cut together and the film is layered and you see just really unique editing styles going on through the whole thing it just was a real real unique experience to watch the opening credits for this film and um, I know that um, I can't remember the the man who uh, did the opening credits but um but he definitely had some influence by stan brackage who is a a very famous avant-garde filmmaker who um, i actually had a class with back in college Mm -hmm. very um interesting filmmaker who really saw film as an art form where you're essentially painting with the camera you're painting with each frame and he took that to the point where he literally was painting on his frames and everything. Um, scratching, he would scratch in the negatives. And, and he would just do all of this very um, unique, visceral um, work with his films that he made. And a lot of that influence came through in the uh, the opening credit sequence here. Just um,
1: So are you saying, I mean, you bring up the scratching. The, the titles, were they actually scratched on the negative?
0: They weren't. They weren't scratched Not here. on the okay. negative but um but they have that sense of having been scratched right. on the negative and they got that from um and I'm not going to remember the term but um usually when they're doing titles they there's a specific kind of um uh camera or something that they use that that essentially um pins the image down and essentially so when they're layering it with the titles on top of it um it will always be in the exact same spot and fincher was just like well why should we have to do that and their reaction was of course well because that's how we always do titles Mm -hmm. and he's just like no 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 let's let's try it without it just feels like the film where you aren't you shouldn't do that and so that kind of creates that real jittery uh, shaky way that each title comes up Mm -hmm. which does really lend it to that feeling of having been scratched into the negative negative.
1: The uh, what the the titles uh, are telling a sort of a sub story in the uh, in seven. Uh, it is uh, we're watching John Doe uh, cut his uh, fingerprints off of his fingers, cutting the skin off of his fingers and, and, uh, you know, affixing them into these journals that he has written. Interestingly about the journals, I, this is a bit of trivia that just, it it sort of blew me away, uh, that in fact, all of these, the books that they discover in John Doe's apartment, and the books that we see him sewing his skin into and writing in, were all real, uh, and and written for the film, uh, taking two months, uh, 15 grand Uh, and uh, uh, every one of these binders was full of the scribbles of sort of the quote John Doe, uh, yeah, which I thought amazing. was fascinating. So that story we're seeing and that, that, you know, the tidbits of, you know, well, there's no, there, there are no fingerprints in the crime scene. Keep looking. There are no fingerprints in his part is his apartment. Keep looking. In fact, there were no fingerprints anywhere because he can, he kept cutting his fingerprints off of his hands. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but then to document them by sewing them into the journals, uh, yet another sort of slap in the face to the detectives that, that he was always seven steps ahead of them, so to mm-hmm. speak.
0: Yeah. And like they say in the film, John Doe by choice.
1: Yeah. John Doe by choice. John yeah. Doe and the seventh victim. Yeah. Uh, by choice. Uh, uh, closing comments, uh, Andrew, how do you, how do you characterize it? I feel like we need some sort of a, um, requiem. Well, Uh, I, I, do you have candles lit, uh, there? I,
0: I, I have been surrounded by candles. By candles and herbs. Yes. Yes, And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in my, uh, uh, my meditative yoga pose.
1: I'm about to eat my ceremonial turducken.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, this, this film, um, was essentially, I guess, if discounting Alien Three, which I think, in you know, a large uh, extent, was kind of a you know, a, not a good first step for David Fincher. This one, really, in a way, may have started off David Fincher as a filmmaker who can essentially get what they call director's cut. Um, where he gets to, you know, make the film that he wants to make. And I think that his argument that he had with Arnold Copelson about keeping the head in the box really proves his intellect at being able to be a director who gets um, directors cut by being able to sell them on the reason why those sorts of things are important and why the film should be made that way. And from the beginning, you know, he's been able to to sell his team on his vision and keep the film going and and they may not have called it director's cut all the way through you know his early career i'm not sure at what point they actually said you know he's got final cut but uh, for all intents and purposes it really feels like this film was the start of that
1: it it uh it, it really does and i think uh, you know back to the uh, well, you know, I want to go back to your, to another passage that you picked up and highlighted in, in, you know, your notes, which is, uh, do you have that open still? Can, I do, you, I can do. you share his, uh, uh, there, there were thoughts on his role versus actor's role. And, and I think his perception of his role is, um, really illustrates why he's a guy who, who, has earned the right to to dictate how his films ultimately play out. Can you share that?
0: Yeah. So David Fincher talking about um, actors, he says the actor's job is to be selfish of their character. They're the experts on who they are, on what they're trying to do. My job, my expertise is how it fits into the whole. And if you start to mutate what they're bringing to the table so that it only serves the narrative, then you're bereft of characterization. And characterization, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Life, that thing that makes the tapestry, it's the rough edges. It's the thing that makes an audience relate to it on a human level. It's a juggling act.
1: I think that's such a fascinating uh, statement as we're talking about, you know, him finding something defensible in the head in the box. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, in fact, it's the weight of the head in the box That as we as an audience uh, are relating to at a human level and the weight of a dog in the box just wouldn't have carried. No, it wouldn't have. It would have. uh, I mean, yeah, it
0: would have been a very kind of flat ending.
1: Yeah. There there is nothing flat about this movie. That is a that's a great uh, that's a great thing to say about it. There is absolutely nothing flat.
0: Oh, I was going to tell you, 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 uh, asked, and, uh, I'm going to have to tell you now about the, the moment that, uh, I think is as perfect as a film as I think this is. There's, there's one thing that I've just never quite, I'm never quite sure of. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a really, really minor complaint, but it's been one, been something that it's always like, oh, okay, I'm not, I'm not sold on it. It's the, it's the strange attitude the relationship that the the swat guys have with the detectives and uh, it only it only comes up twice in the film um all in the scene the sloth scene and um the first time it's the two detectives are walking up as as you know the big you know let's go get the bad guy uh, the ride to the bad guy's house is happening which turns out to be a um a red herring as it's really just a chase to find another victim. Mm -hmm. Um, But as the two detectives are walking up the stairs, one of the SWAT guy runs by and says, Hey, SWAT's before dicks and he runs past them to go up and, you know, be ahead of them basically. And then um, John C. McGinley, a fantastic
1: actor, um, in a in a, yeah, yeah, a fairly small role yeah very small role in this film
0: but you know as he's looking at sloth which at this point everybody thinks is a dead body um you know they say something and i i should have written down what uh the detectives say but he kind of whispers back to them you get what you deserve you know like this there's this weird attitude between the these two departments within the police force. And then of course, sloth wakes up and everything. Right. is and... he's
1: screaming dicks, dicks, yeah, dicks right. for the private de- or for the detectives.
0: So, um, it, but it's, it's just, it's, it's a weird little, you know, thing that, you know, it doesn't bother me that much. It's just a weird relationship thing that I don't think ever was developed that well. I guess, you know, by nature in a police force, different departments are going to have attitudes toward each other and stuff. And, you know, that's, I guess, uh, the one, you know, the thing in this film that, uh, stands out to me is just not as developed as I would have liked it to have been.
1: I find that really interesting. That's one that didn't, uh, that's one that, that slipped by me. I, I thought that was a well, I thought that was an interesting bit of sort of police force classism.
0: It is. It is.
1: And uh or or the sort of a caste system that exists in this in this kind of microculture and uh I'd be interested but, to to hear just sort of how real uh or not that is. Right. Because by
0: the end of it, you know, there's no attitude at all as, you know, they're flying around in the helicopter over the two detectives. Exactly. So it's, you well, know, that's a,
1: that's a good point. That is that cast system is not, uh, you know, maybe it's just a, because of their, they're sort of portraying the professionalism of the force in a very intense sort of high octane scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, uh, that, that also may go to your complaint that it, it was a not, uh, not a fully developed angle. Yeah.
0: Let me, let me ask you one more question about your thoughts on the film. Yeah. Um, the original ending of the film Mm -hmm. happened after Mills shot Doe and, uh, and then you cut to a shot overhead of the helicopter, you know, flying down and you hear him saying, somebody call somebody, somebody call somebody. And then it would just fade to black. And that was the original ending of the film. What do you think of the ending as it is now where, It fades back up. We see Mills in the back of the police cruiser getting ready to be taken in. Um, You know, uh, Somerset has the conversation with the police captain saying, I'll be around, kind of hinting that, you know, he's not quitting now. And then there's the quote he has of Hemingway. What do you think of that ending?
1: Uh, The voiceover bit.
0: Yeah, the, well, the whole thing, like the you know Brad Pitt, you know, we see him in the car. We you know see Morgan Freeman saying he's you know essentially not quitting. He's going to be around, and yeah. then the the Hemingway quote.
1: Wow, I feel like that's a loaded question. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I'm supposed to answer it. My initial reaction is I I, I found it. Uh, well, all right, maybe this is telling. When I remember the ending, like you tell me what you think about the ending. What sticks out to me is the gang style angle of um of brad pitt firing his gun at camera six or seven times right Uh um sort of pov of john doe yeah and then there's they wander away he wanders off from the scene from the point of view of the helicopter Mm-hmm. Then we're at the where we've got lights going in the dark and the captain's talking to Morgan Freeman and they say, you know, get him whatever he needs, whatever he needs. I'll be around. Right. Right. And I had forgotten that the Hemingway quote was even part of it. Yeah. yeah. To me, the end of the, the movie ended. So I guess that's pretty telling. I, I one of the things that sticks out at me more than anything else is that it it's an iconic. It's as iconic as the silhouette of Indiana Jones putting on the fedora mm-hmm. is uh, Morgan Freeman's character, um, uh, turning sort of screen left over his shoulder when he says, I'll be around, he's got his hat on. Yeah. And, and it's that just sort of beautiful copper tone to the screen and you see him, uh, say that in the rain and it's just, uh, well, actually I'm not sure that it's actually raining, but it's just that, that Humphrey Bogart moment, you know, Yeah. uh, that, and, and I want I guess I, deep down, I wanted it to be, that to be the the punctuation on the film. I'm not sure, I guess I'm not crazy about the Hemingway. And
0: well, but even before the Hemingway, I mean, I, the filmmakers, like well Fincher, um, none of them wanted to add that ending on. But it was received very poorly in test screenings. And the studio wanted a a little aftermath scene, kind of tacked onto the ending.
1: You're Something... saying you're saying the the wandering off in the desert was received poorly in test screenings.
0: Yeah, like at, we'd cut to the helicopter shot overhead as we hear you know um, the SWAT team saying, "Somebody call somebody, somebody yeah. call somebody." Fade to black. Roll credits. Right. Um, the test screening did really poorly. Um, the audience was livid. And the studio felt they needed to tack on an aftermath ending. Nobody wanted to do it, but the studio required it, so they did. Um, I I personally have never had a problem with it. Like moments, like you said, with Freeman looking over his shoulder, saying, "I'll be around." I mean, it's a great moment,
1: you know. Well, and you know what I like so much about it is that it it um, it shows again. Uh, it absolutely fits fits in the dramatic context of the film we go through this whole the, this whole thing where we see these two partners and uh in the larger context of the for, the police force we see that this these horrifying events over the course of the week have brought them together and we watch what happens when one of their own falls apart and the end of this film says you know what this was really bad but we're not going to fall apart anymore yeah you know that's i uh, it was left to me as as really horrific as the movie is and what you see you know the impact of what you see is is so sort of stunning um the end is sort of an uplifting ending
0: in a in a way yeah it is because you know morgan freeman's not going to retire he's you know, wants to stay there. Be yeah, strong. it's like
1: he's still, he's strong for the transition. You know, you kind of get the sense that, you know, he's not going anywhere because he knows the importance of the role. He knows the importance of his job. And he's going to stay until it's, until things are, are together. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a powerful statement. And it's all, uh, it, it's all wrapped up in those words, you know, those all be, that all be around. Yeah. I think that was, I think it's great. I actually, you know, the more I talk about it, the more I like it. I still am not crazy about the quote. Uh,
0: I I don't mind the quote. I mean, it's it's there. I don't think it's as memorable for me as, um, you know, scenes where Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are talking in the bar. About apathy or where Brad uh, where Morgan Freeman and Gwyneth Paltrow are talking about loving their baby. Yeah. Just those spoiling the baby. Yeah. Those moments stand out to me as the big, powerful emotional moments. That quote at the end really, I mean, I don't think they needed it, but I do like the rest of the ending as yeah. it is.
1: Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I, uh, this movie, uh, more than I think any other of the uh early Fincher films, man, this one holds up, uh, so well for me. It was, oh, yeah, uh, this is as good as they get.
0: You know, and we've gone through all of these now, and I keep saying every time, I'm like, you know, this one uh, might have been my favorite. This one might have been my favorite. I don't know. I'm back to seven now, maybe being being on top of all of them for me. Which I, I think I just...
1: is so funny, because we started out, both of us, when we started with Dragon Tattoo, talking about how excited we were to finally get to seven, eventually yeah. to get to seven. And right. now we've done it, and I think it's it was absolutely predictive of the quality of this film.
0: Yeah it's It's just a stunning film it's uh so well made and it's just a such a unique way to tell a story like this that is is not something you've seen before i I, I don't think there was anything wrong with it
1: no no I really don't uh I de- yeah that's good. so what are we going to do next week? Have we figured it out
0: i i We may just have to leave uh, leave everyone hanging.
1: There are so many great adaptations from season one available in audio form.
0: Charlie Kaufman did a crazy adaptation of Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief, making it a script about him going through the process of adapting it. Crazy, but made for a great film. And I hear the book is great, too.
1: Our David Fincher series had some great book adaptations, too, like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or The Curious Case of Benjamin Button.
0: Don't forget The Social Network and Zodiac. I could totally listen to those back-to-back. And lest we forget one of my favorites fight club oh so good in season one we also talked about alan j pakula's paranoia trilogy one of which is all the president's men such an amazing story and we had some adaptations in our baseball series too the natural and field of dreams
1: both classics and i loved the books behind the jason reitman series thank you for smoking and up in the air which do
0: you like better the book or film version of thank you for smoking
1: You're a terrible person for even
0: asking that. It's Soapy's Choice. (laughs) But seriously, folks, producing this podcast is a lot of fun and takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and they have no connection to our content.
1: Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit.
0: We listened when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible, along with my family, for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to the slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So
0: much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com
1: slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.